Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new Friday series with James Jordan on the topic of biblical wisdom. And here he's mostly going to be in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 in a talk titled Wisdom and Rule. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing biblical wisdom. And let me remind you that in Proverbs chapter 8, in verse 15, wisdom says, By me kings reign. This is the important statement about wisdom. Wisdom is for kings. Wisdom is not for priests. Priests have law. Kings have wisdom. And the arrival of the wisdom literature in the Bible is kingly literature. Job is the king of the land of Edom. And the other things that are in the wisdom literature group are for and by kings. And so we need to understand, in order to understand that, I want us to go back to the beginning in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis and consider what a number of you are already rather familiar with, but we need to do it again. What is going on in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in terms of the development of the world? And I'll remind you that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then in chapter 2 we read that God planted a garden on the east side of the land of Eden, and there are other lands that are watered by a river. Let's use some blue for a river. A river arises in the land of Eden, goes through the garden, and then breaks out into four streams that go to other lands, other lands that are in the world. Adam and Eve, Adam first, is placed in this garden. The garden is a place where there are trees, food that's absolutely free. He doesn't have to do any work for it. He doesn't have to plant it. These trees already have fruit on them. It's fully provided. And among these trees are two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of death. One tree that gives life, one tree that gives death. That's the polarity of time in which human beings live. These zones are the first place in which you live and the second place in which you live. If God puts Adam in the garden, then that's the first place he's going to live. Even if five minutes later he walks out into the land, the first place he lives is the garden. And so there's an alpha location and some kind of omega location, which is outside. It's obviously implied that if Adam is going to take dominion over the entire world, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps around on the earth, he's going to move out of this garden. But the garden is the place where he starts. Now, that's common sense, isn't it? But you have to think about that. You have to reflect on the fact that this is where it starts. Because this gives us eschatology. It gives us time. This area out here is the kingly area, the area outside the garden. Inside the garden is the priestly area. 
That is the place where God will meet with man on the Sabbath day. Man was made on the sixth day. The next day God comes to meet with him, but man has already sinned. Now, in this garden are these two special trees at the center of the garden. So they're marked out. You would notice them. The middle of the garden, at the center of the garden, literally, it says, are the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of death, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which if you eat, you will die. Those are in the center of the garden. They're marked out. God says, of every tree you may eat freely, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, dying you will die. Does that mean that he's allowed to eat of the tree of life? Yes. No matter how many Reformed theologians don't admit that, Adam was freely invited to eat the tree of life. The tree of life is not the eschatological tree. It's not the tree of blessing at the end. It's the beginning tree. You start with life. The tree that's postponed is the tree of death, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God says, after he has told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says in chapter 1, verse 29, to both Adam and Eve, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Now, in Hebrew, we don't have a pure future tense, so we can't just camp on this and say, yes, it shall be food for you. But the fact is, that is what is implied here. Because right now, Adam can't have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's not supposed to. But when God says it will be food for you, that means eventually he will eat of it. Now, what will happen when he eats of it? He'll die. So we have one tree that gives life, and that's a good thing. And we have one tree that gives death. And at least in an unfallen world, that would seem to be a good thing. Now, we are so used to reading this, Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a threat. But you see, there's no reason to take that as a threat. It can just as easily be a promise, and in fact, all it is is a statement. He says, don't eat of it, and by the way, in the day you eat of it, dying you will die. Now, if you eat it without permission, that's a threat. You'll experience bad death. But there will come a time when you will eat of it, and one of two things is true. Either in the day God says, you know, Adam, you're ready to eat of the tree of knowledge. Okay, I'm going to take away the judgment of death, and now you'll eat of it, and you won't die. That may be right. Or God may say, Adam... You're ready to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so today you will experience death. So which is it? How are we going to decide which of those two things God would have done? Well, the Bible is going to help us to understand that when we understand something about the nature of death apart from the fall. Let's just reflect on that for just a minute. A lot of the creation scientists will say, well, there just wasn't any death before the fall. And there never would have been any. No animals would have died. Well, if no animals would have died, within about 20 years, the earth would have been six feet deep in rabbits, right? I mean, you obviously have to have animals falling asleep and making room for new animals, or else they just cover the earth. So, well, all right, animals would die, but no people would die. Well, how long would it be before the world would be wall-to-wall -wall people? 
The implication is that at some point, the old folks would fall asleep or ascend into heaven, be like Enoch and Elijah, or fall asleep, as the New Testament says, and make way for new folks. Go off the world and wait for the glories of the age to come. Go be with God in heaven and wait for the full new creation that's going to come one way or the other. There has to be some kind of moving off the earth to make room for new people, unless we're going to go out in space. And I don't think that you would have gotten out into space soon enough. So we have to be realistic here and not say there would never have been any kind of death or falling asleep or dormition. You want the big word, okay? The big theological word for this is dormition. Falling asleep in death. That's what Mary did according to the Eastern Church. She fell asleep in death and then she was floated up to heaven. The Roman Catholic Church said she didn't die at all. Eastern Church says she underwent dormition. Gentle, peaceful death. So, that's a nice concept. I don't think it's true for Mary. But it might have been true for Adam and Eve after a thousand years, and then their sons, when they got to be a thousand, you know, move off the earth. We have to believe something like that. Now, with that in mind, when God says, in the day you eat of it, you will die, we cannot assume right to start with here in the Bible that death is a bad thing. Death as we experience it is death under sin. It's a bad thing. And since Adam fell in the very next chapter, then the whole rest of the Bible shows us bad death. But we haven't gotten to the whole rest of the Bible yet. We can't just pull that back in here. Let's look at what's going on. Now, death is going to be my topic tonight, but I just want to introduce it to you here. We're going to talk about wisdom here and then wisdom and death tonight. But to start with, we have to kind of put a lot of this on the table. Let's look at the serpent and his nature and purpose. What's he going to do? God has promised that we will get knowledge of good and evil. And as I said, maybe God would have changed the rules and said, Okay, Adam, you're ready for knowledge of good and evil. I said, eventually, every tree would be for you. Now, today, I'm going to let you come to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to take away the death penalty. I'm going to change that. No longer will it cause you death. Just like when the new covenant no longer do unclean animals cause symbolic death. This will no longer be the application. We've got a new covenant and changing the death penalty here. Maybe that's what he would have done. Maybe Adam would have undergone some kind of death. We're going to leave that for tonight. Right now, we're going to look at the wise serpent. Chapter 3, verse 1, Seth. Now, the serpent was more crafty, or really wiser, than any beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He is the most wise, and he comes from the field. He comes from outside the garden, into the garden, and he brings shrewdness. He brings wisdom, because wisdom is what you need out here. In here... In the garden, you live under law. What is the law concern? Food. It's a food law. Eat all these other plants, don't eat the tree of knowledge. You have a food law, a sacramental law in this sanctuary area. When the tabernacle is built, what's the tabernacle all about? It's all about food. 
What is a priest? A priest is a holy chef. That's why he dresses in white, like emerald. He's a chef. He prepares the food. He cooks the food. He inspects the food. He inspects the people who are going to be coming to dinner at the food event. The whole book of Leviticus is all about the food that the priest, as a holy chef, is offering to God and the table of the Lord. That's what goes on in here. And there's forbidden food and there's allowed food. There's food of life and there's food of death. It's all the same stuff there. And in church, we have a food law. We have the Lord's Supper. Food law. And we avoid the table of demons. Food law. It's what we do. We have the Word at the table. Now, there's other occasions for the Word. We have the Word at the table on Sunday morning, ordinarily. We also have the Word out here in life. By me, kings reign. That's not in church. That's out there. The Word is for both places. Now we have this wise animal. What kinds of animals are there? Am I right to make a big deal out of this? Yeah, I am. Because it says in Genesis 1, 24 and 25, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeps and beasts of the earth after their kind. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creep that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. There's three different kinds of animals mentioned here. Cattle, domestic animals, animals that live near people. Some of them you can eat, like sheep, oxen, cat. And others of the domestic animals you don't eat, like dogs. Okay, But cats the other white meat, right? <laughs> then there are the beasts of the field. To what we call wild animals, animals that don't live near people, untamed animals. And then there are the creeping things. Well, we're not going to worry about the creeping things in chapter 2, but in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, Adam is in the garden, and it says, Out of the ground, out of the dirt, Yahweh God, the Lord God, formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man, Adam, the Adam, called a living creature, that was his name. And the Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fitted for him. No, because we are in a church sanctuary environment, and what Adam needs is somebody to help him worship. This is not about having a wife to help you clean the house. This is about having a bride to be in dialogue with in worship. This is a worship setting. And no animal can do that because animals don't usually talk. We don't bring animals to church on Sunday and have a worship dialogue with them. But Adam needs a partner in worship. He needs for worship to be a corporate thing. He needs to sit down at a table with God and some other human being. And that is the helper that is suitable for him. That's what this is talking about. Now, women are also the slaves of men in every other area of life as well, correct? But here it's... Okay, not correct. But here it's talking about worship. Animals do help you plow your field. Your animals are for that. They, they are helpers of all kinds of things, but they're not liturgical helpers. Now... Notice, God formed the beasts of the field and birds of the sky. And the Jewish expositors, and I think they are correct 
interpret that to mean God brought them. He formed them up in ranks. Not that he made new ones out of the dirt, but he took the ones he'd already made and informed them in procession of some sort. Just like God brought the animals to Noah, he brings them, he forms them up to come to Adam. And these are the birds and the wild animals. Then it says Adam gave names to the cattle and to the wild animals and the birds. Why didn't God form up and bring the cattle? Because they were already there. There's these garden animals that are already there. That's what's meant by cattle, the domestic animals. And then the wild animals are brought. So there are animals that belong in the garden. And there are animals that are outside the garden and are out in the land. Now, we have already read all that when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and we read the serpent was wiser, craftier, shrewder than any beast of the field. What kind of animal is he? He's an outside animal. He's from the field, not from the garden. So he comes in, and he's bringing wisdom. It's his job to teach Adam and Eve, who are newborn babies and are under law, to teach them wisdom. Why? So they can go out into the world. That's his job. We see this in Galatians 4. We have to go all the way over the New Testament for kind of a quick proof for this. But we're told that that was the function of angels in the Old Testament. You and I know that this is an angel in disguise here, this serpent. He's a serpent. He's the wisest animal. Jesus says, be wise as serpents. So don't be pushing that word shrewd or crafty and say, oh, the serpent was crafty in some evil sense. Jesus says, be wise as serpents. This is wisdom here. This animal, he's Mr. Wisdom. By me, king's reign, says wisdom. This animal knows how to rule. Serpents are found in king's palaces. The serpent, he's a kingly animal. He has wisdom. He knows how to rule. He's coming to the garden to teach Adam and Eve. That's his job. That's what's happening here. Galatians 4 tells us in verses 1 to 3, As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything but is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary things of the world. But in the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. So you start out in elementary school. Elementary things of the world. Beginning things of the world. Elementary school. And in elementary school, you have a teacher, and the teachers are the angels. And the head of these angels is a guy that we don't really have a name for, but we can call him Lucifer. That doesn't imply that he's fallen. It implies that he is light. We only have a name for him after he falls into sin. He's the Satan and the devil and Napoleon and Abaddon, those different wormwood, Beelzebub, and other things. Similarly, Hebrews chapter 5, anybody but Paul says, he tells us, in chapter 5, verse 11, concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You need to go back to elementary school. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For one who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He is a baby. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Ah, that takes us back to Genesis 
two, knowledge of good and evil. Mature people have knowledge of good and evil. Babies don't have knowledge of good and evil. Solid food is for the mature who have acquired knowledge of good and evil and are ready for the second stage of the Word of God. The first stage of the Word of God is law, rules for kids. The second stage of the Word of God is wisdom for those who have acquired knowledge of good and evil and are ready to move out of the kindergarten where all the food is free and life is a lark and you don't have to do anything for your food and to move out here into the field where you have to plant grain and then harvest grain and then you have to winnow the grain and then you have to mix it with water and oil and salt and bake the grain. Now, that's fun, isn't it? Or you can put it in a bread machine and then have that do it for you. It's not as much fun. And you have to knead it. There's work involved out here with this stuff. Field food. Field food is grain and wine. Wine isn't trees. This is free food. Bananas, apples, pears, kiwi fruits. Easy food. No processing involved. Orchard food, paradise food. In Hebrew, pardes. In Persian, pardes food shows up in Ecclesiasticals and Song of Solomon, okay? Orchard food. Different kind of food. The food of the field is go out and do some work to make that. Unfortunately, now it's got thorns and thistles. Originally, it wasn't gonna. All right? Now, what about this knowledge of good and evil? Well, it is a phrase that means the wisdom to rule. The wisdom to rule and pass judgments. We want to look at that because that is what wisdom is. Wisdom is for kings. In 2 Samuel 14, verse 17, the wise woman of Tekoa is brought before David to talk him into letting Absalom come home again. And in verse 17, She's using this polite speech, and then she says to David, Then your maidservant said, Please let the word of my lord the king be comforting for, and this is the important point, for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil. Now, who is the angel of God? That's Yahweh, the ruler, the king of Israel. And how does he rule? Well, he rules by discerning good and evil and passing judgments. The king has the same thing. The king has knowledge of good and evil. Now, you see, there isn't a tradition of interpretation that says Adam and Eve were never going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were never going to get knowledge of good and evil. Only God is supposed to have knowledge of good and evil. But that's not what we're reading here. And I'm going to show you a bunch of other passages. We just saw one in Hebrews that says you're supposed to grow up and have knowledge of good and evil. Grow up and be like God. Deuteronomy 1, verse 39 the next thing down here in your notes tells us that little kids don't have knowledge of good and evil. Moreover, says Moses, your little ones who you said would become a prey and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good and evil, they will enter the land and I will give it to them and they will possess it. That's what God said 39 years earlier. He said, you guys are all going to die in the wilderness, but your little kids who don't yet have knowledge of good and evil... They will enter the land. Little kids don't have knowledge of good and evil. We learn a little bit more about it 
is something kings have. Other rulers have it. Genesis 31, verse 24. Laban comes out after Jacob. And God appears to Laban in a dream. And God says, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or evil. In other words, you don't pass judgment on him. Now Laban has come out with a group of men. They're not a group of warriors, but they are the elders of this society, and they're going to have a court, and they're going to pass judgment on Jacob. And God says to Laban, "Uh uh-uh, you do not pass judgment concerning good and evil over Jacob. You're not in charge of things. Well, if we want to go back to understanding good and evil in the Bible, let's go back to Genesis 1. Now, you see, in our minds, and this is true, we think of good and evil ethically. Good is to do the right things, obey the law of God. Evil is to do the wrong things, disobey God. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity to or disobedience of the law of God. That's evil. And good, that's to do good works, is to do good things. But that's not what the phrase good and evil means in the Bible. It means passing judgment on these things. And it starts in Genesis 1 where over and over again God sees things are good. As Peter says, one thing we learn from Genesis 1 is that God is very repetitious. Over and over again, day after day, God sees it as good. And it was so. Very ritualized text. Anybody doesn't like the idea of ritual and repetition, they just need to say, God made the world that way. So, God sees that it's good. God saw the light was good. God saw that it was good on the dry land earth and the gathering of waters He calls seas. And God saw that it was good. Notice, He sees that it's good. His eyes are open and He passes judgment concerning good. And this continues through the passage, chapter 12. He makes the fruit trees and the grain plants, and God sees that it is good. He establishes the sun, moon, and stars, and God saw that it was good. And at the end of the week, He saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. But that was at the end. Because God distinguishes between good and not good. Now, there's a couple of things to notice here. One is, if everything is good on the third day, why do we need a fourth day? Once the fourth day comes, the third day isn't quite good enough anymore. So God has to make change it and do things on the fourth day. And how is He doing that? He's using wisdom to do that. We're going to talk about that. Now in chapter 2, verse 18, Yahweh God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. Well then, why would you make him alone to start with? Why didn't you make the woman at the same time? I mean, He could have. But He didn't. There's reasons for that. But he sees that something is not good. Now, what happens here is that God brings animals to Adam so that Adam can see that things are not good. Right now, Adam's just fat, dumb, and happy, or skinny, dumb, and happy. He's newly made. He stands there on the mountaintop and watches God plant this garden. All this stuff comes up. He gets put inside the garden. There's bananas everywhere. What more could you ask? Donuts, that's about it. I mean, he'll get that when he gets out into the field and starts to harvest that grain and those chocolate trees or cacao trees. But right now, I mean, it seems pretty good to him. He's not aware that there's any problems. God wants him to become aware that things are not good. 
And so he brings these pairs of animals to Adam so that Adam can become aware of the not goodness of the situation and that there is a need for things to change. So Adam says, oh, there's two of each of them and there's physical differences between them. Adam doesn't have any clothes on so he can really tell the differences here. And he's, maybe I need one of those too. So he is sensing the not goodness of the situation. So now what's going to happen? Well, Adam has wisdom, so he can just reach in and change the situation. That's what wisdom is. By wisdom, kings rule. But does Adam have wisdom? No. So Adam can't change the situation. God has wisdom, so God will change it. At this point in history, only God has the wisdom skill to bring about the needed change. Proverbs 8, 22-31 describes how it was by wisdom that God made the world in the six days. And each day God changed the world. And as we'll see tonight, there's an evening, a little death in between each day. It didn't have to be that way. Why is there an evening between each day? Why not just one day after another? Why does God take things down into darkness before bringing them back up? Why does He do that? Because that's the kind of God He is. I mean, that's the answer to that question. But it's important for us to understand that He didn't have to do that. God has the wisdom skill to bring about the needed change. And so, He's the one who's going to do it. After all, could have said, Okay, Adam, now you realize things are not good. Now, just stand still, Adam. Here. Could have happened that way, couldn't it? But that's not how it happened. Adam wasn't wide awake, just watching God do it. It happened in a completely different way from that. Very important for us to understand that God put Adam into a death situation and then resurrected and glorified him. How do we know that Adam was glorified? How do we know that this is glorification? You ladies should know. Adam was not glorified. Then after he woke up, he was glorified. Why? Because the woman is the what of the man, according to Paul. The woman is the glory of the man. So this is the first moment of glorification in history. Real important. Jesus' resurrection gives him a bride too. So he's glorified. Now, on page 2 I have here, all animals are given for childhood and training toward adult wisdom. So if we look in the Old Testament, we have all these animal proverbs. We have ritual allegories in the book of Leviticus. All those rituals about you bring an animal near and you lean on it and then you kill it and throw the blood over here and then you cut it into this many pieces and you divide up these pieces and wash these. These are all allegories. These are all recapitulations of historical events. What's done to the ox is the same is walking through the steps of Israel coming out of Egypt, being washed in the Dead Sea and ascending up to Mount Sinai. All of these animals and animal proverbs in the Old Testament are allegories and stories to inculcate wisdom. But there are no animals in the epistles of Paul. Paul insists that the animal laws were really about human beings all along, which is true. He says, you don't muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. That means pay the preacher. But that was always true. That's true in Deuteronomy. It means the levier is entitled to the usufruct of the property of his brother while he raises up his children in context. Also means feed your ox. Jesus' proverbs are never about animals. 
When Nathan comes to David, he tells him an animal proverb. When Jotham stands before his brothers in Judges chapter 9, he tells them a tree proverb about the different trees. There's proverbs about the cedar tree and the eagle in Ezekiel. But Jesus doesn't tell any animal proverbs, does he? Jesus' parables are about people. Not like Aesop's parables. I don't remember any animal parables of Jesus, do you? Eh, sheep and the goats, if that's a parable. Pardon? The sower and the seed. You've got some vegetable, but you don't have animal ones. So, we're moving beyond the animal world here in the New Covenant. The things that were said about animals are now said about people in the epistles. Well, unfortunately, Adam decided to let Eve take a bite of the fruit. The first thing that was unfortunate, so to speak, is that the angel who was supposed to be teaching them with the wise serpent decided to mislead them. First of all, he asked them a good question. Adam and Eve are standing together here. We know that because it says so. It says the woman gave the fruit to her husband with her. That with her means he was there the whole time, which is important. So he talks to the woman, the serpent does, and says, Has God said you can't eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Now how did she learn that? She learned it from Adam, because she wasn't there when God gave that rule. See, she was made later. But she has learned it from Adam. He's her teacher in this liturgical situation in the garden. And she improves on it. She says, don't eat it, don't touch it, which is true. If you look in Leviticus, the things you don't eat, you don't touch. As Paul says, touch not, handle not, taste not. These things go along. So she's reasoning correctly. This is correct theological reasoning here. All right? And so the serpent has asked her, was it God who said it? And she says, well, I don't believe Adam would lie to me. Adam said God said it, so I believe him. Yes, God said it. He's asking her to think about it. He's asking her to become self-conscious, or as Van Tillian say, to become epistemologically self-conscious. To become aware of why she thinks what she thinks. Not just to have prejudices that she grew up with, she hasn't grown very long, but to think about it. Okay, what is the source of my information? Why do I believe this? That's how you begin to acquire wisdom. The ability to think twice is wisdom. To think a second time, to take a second look, that's wisdom. And that's what he's asking her to do. And at this point... It's all fine. And then in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die. Now that is an attack on the word of God. At that point, he crossed the line. At that point, Adam should have stepped in and said, hey, leave my wife alone. But he didn't because he wanted her to take a bite to see what would happen. See, he was conducting an experiment. And if she'd keeled over dead, then he would have said, hey, I got more ribs. You know, look what happened. She ate this fruit. How about another one? I've still got more ribs. But, you see, Adam was fooled by the delay of the parousia. Important theme in the Bible. God does not pass judgment instantly. He waits to see how things fall out. He gives you time to repent, or He gives you time to make it worse. And when God did not show up right away, God said, in the day you eat of it, you'll die. He didn't say you'll die the instant you eat of it. So... 
after she didn't keel over and die, he ate some too. Well, this whole thing was planned out by him, and that's why it's the sin of Adam, not the sin of Eve that brings the human race down. Eve, we're told twice in the New Testament, was tricked. She was tricked and deceived. And who tricked and deceived her? (laughs) Adam tricked and deceived her just as much as the serpent did, probably more responsible. So then judgment comes. Well, now, what I want us to focus on here, that was all interesting, but the main thing is this wisdom stuff that's here. Verse 7 says their eyes were opened. They ate this tree and their eyes were opened. Well, does that mean they were blind before? Or they were going around with their eyes shut? No, obviously this means eyes opening in some important new sense. And it's opening in the sense that Genesis 1 has it, where God sees that things are good. Knowledge of good and evil involves seeing that things are good, or seeing that things are not good, or seeing that things are evil. Something is not good long enough, it's going to become evil. That's the sense in which their eyes are open. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes, which is true. She recognized these things because God had already said every single tree, including the tree of knowledge, it wasn't some dark, ugly tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not a whomping willow tree. It was as pretty looking as all the rest And the food was as good. Every tree that's pleasing to the sight, every tree is good for food. That's another proof that the knowledge of good and evil tree is eventually going to be eaten. And she says, she recognizes that the tree is good for food. That's a delight to the eyes. Both of those things are true. And it's desirable to make wise, which is true. That's not creative seeing. That is learning by sight. Now their eyes are open in the sense of passing judgment. Their eyes are open and they say, whoa. They have a sense of shame. They see that they're naked. Well, they already knew they were naked. I mean, give me a break. They've been looking at each other naked for the last six hours. But now, or more than that, but now they see it. This is a passing of judgment. This has really happened here. What the tree of the knowledge of evil was supposed to give has been given. The problem is that Adam and Eve are now in sin, and they have received this gift in a state of sin, which means they're going to pervert the gift unless God does something about it. But they genuinely received it. If you're 12 years old and you go out and get in your dad's car and you drive it down the street and wreck it, still it's the fact that you rode the car. If you have sex before you're married, you have lost your virginity, and that's permanent. All right? Adam and Eve ate this fruit And that's it. They were changed. They got knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were opened. It says in verse 22, Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us. That's what the devil said. You'll become like God. That's true. You won't become equal to God, but you will mature in your God-likeness from being a child to being an adult. (laughs) Only a perverted adult. You will mature to the point of passing judgments like God. And God says... Behold, a man has become like one of us. There's no sarcasm here. Knowing good and evil. That really happens. And so God puts on them tunics of rule. Verse 21. Yahweh God made garments of skin. But the word garments there, you see, is the word tunic. Ketonic in Hebrew. It means a garment of authority. 
It shows up again in the book of Genesis in the story of Joseph. That's the next time we meet this word. When Joseph's father made him a garment that set him in charge of his brothers, this is the word. A long-sleeved robe, or traditional translation, robe of many colors, as nice as that is, apparently that's not the best way to render it. A long-sleeved tunic, a special tunic. And when the brothers grabbed Joseph and threw him in the pit, what did they do? They tore up that tunic. The first thing it says they did was they ripped the tunic off of him and tore it up. Why? Because it was a sign of his authority. Then Potiphar gave him a robe, and Potiphar's wife tore that off of him, and then Pharaoh gave him a robe. and <laughs> Nobody tore it off of Joseph after Pharaoh gave him a robe. There are three robes there. That answers this theme. Those are robes of authority. So are these. And God sent him then. He says, okay, you want to be a king? Your eyes are open. You want to pass judgments of good and evil? You want to be a grown-up? You go on out here into the field. In verses 23 to 24. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And Adam said, Oh no, I've changed my mind. I don't wish to be sent out of the garden. And so God drove the man out. That's a little missing verse in there. He sent him out. Adam doesn't seem to have wanted to go out. So God drove him out. And then he says, You can't come back in here because if you do, you will eat the tree of life. And exactly why that is is something of a mystery. But the consensus of most people who reflect on it, and I think is correct, is that the tree of life would have sealed him in his state of sin. It would have quickened his wickedness to the point where he would not have been redeemable. And exactly how that works, I don't know. But that seems to be the thought. So don't eat the tree of life now because of your sinful situation. But when the sin is taken away, then you'll be given access to the tree of life again. In Jesus, our sin is taken away, and we are given access to the tree of life again. So, wisdom, what the animal brings, becoming more like God, that Solomon is the good example for us. Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 3, asks for knowledge of good and evil. You see, Solomon is young. He is way too young to be a king. David started out being a king when he was 30. Joseph stood in front of Pharaoh when he was 30. Jesus started his ministry when he was 30. How old was Solomon when he started? Have you ever calculated? He couldn't have been more than 20. I mean, it just doesn't work out. He's not 30. And he's quite nervous about being king. He has all these older brothers who are considerably older than he is. His wife is a disfavored wife. And he is in a rough position. But he loves the Lord and he goes to the high place at Gibeon where the tabernacle was. And he makes offerings there, which is the right thing to do. And he prays. And in verses 7 to 9 he says, And now, Yahweh my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. It's an interesting statement there. You almost think of Adam. If Adam had been humble, he might have said, I'm not mature enough. I don't know how to go out and come in. I don't know how to move back and forth among these various realms of life. Solomon says, I'm too young. Thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen. 
a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give thy servant an understanding heart, a hearing heart, to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. That's what he asked for. He asked for knowledge of good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? You see, knowledge of good and evil is the skill to pass judgments and rule. And he says, I'm not old enough for it. Now, that's the opposite of Adam's attitude, you see. Adam's attitude was, hey, I've been around for 14 hours already. I am ready to have knowledge of good and evil. Solomon says, I'm not ready. He's humble. This is going to be very important in the wisdom literature because in Proverbs, the young man is told, don't hang around with the gang. Hang around with the company of the wise, the old guys. And Solomon, as long as he's wise, he'll listen to the old guys, the company of the wise. Well, God answers him. In verse 12, God says, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. So there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. God gives him wisdom to discern good and evil. And then what's the first thing we read after that in verses 16 and following is the story of the two harlots who come and he passes judgment. And we'll see tonight involves capital punishment. It involves death. Solomon starts out his rule by killing a bunch of people, and this is part of that. He threatens to kill the baby, remember? But that's just part of his wisdom and skill. This is knowledge of good and evil. He is able... I mean, Solomon doesn't say, let me take a break here and consult the book of Deuteronomy. There wouldn't have been anything in Deuteronomy to help him out. This is beyond the law. This is a skill beyond the law. But you see, a Solomon is unlike Adam. He's not presumptuous, but he does come to this knowledge of good and evil. So, the message that I'm trying to get across, and what I hope I have gotten you to see, is that wisdom has to do with rule. Wisdom has to do with this area outside the garden. Wisdom has to do with kingship. Now, in the history of Israel, we move from priest to king. We move from law, it's given to the priests, Leviticus, reinforced in Deuteronomy, and then we have the kingdom period, which comes afterwards, which is in the land. The laws are focused on the sanctuary, and then in Deuteronomy, they have a land application. But then for real skill, we have to move into this wisdom. That's all I had to say in this first lecture. We could have discussion of it if you want for a few minutes. Anybody want to add anything or ask anything? Yeah. Just a question. You said earlier about the passive judgment. In Genesis 1, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was very good. But on day 2, there is no passing of judgment. What's the solution? Why doesn't God say that things are good on the second day? My answer to that is best I understand it. There's two possibilities there. One is, ultimately, the firmament is not a good thing. So that ultimately, it's going to be withdrawn. And once again, heaven and earth will be face to face. The other answer to that is that This is part of the forming and dividing work, which is not finished until the middle of the third day. So then God separates the land from the sea, and then he says, that's good. And then he fills the earth with plants, and he says, that's good. So the second answer is, the reason it's not said to be good yet is that God hasn't finished doing that particular work yet. So 
I don't know which to choose between those two, and maybe it's some of both. But probably the second answer is more correct. But then, why didn't God divide the land from the sea on the second day and do it all on the same day? Well, all those are good questions. You see, God is making the world by wisdom, and so if we really think through why God did things the way he did, we'll acquire wisdom. So that's part of the usefulness of Genesis 1. Yeah. The question is, since wisdom is for ruling, why write books that are public and part of the Bible, which everybody gets as access to, who aren't rulers and aren't going to be doing any of these things? And I would say that my answer would be that, because there's an analogy, I mean, every man and every woman has analogous situations in their life. Solomon is preeminent. I mean, I think that's what Ecclesiastes gives us, that Solomon is the guy who's actually got so much money and so much wisdom that he can actually do the model job of being a sub-creator and then reflect on it, whereas you and I don't have the wherewithal to do that. But it's still the principles apply to everybody. Do you have another answer beyond that of why everybody's given access to this? Now, I'm wondering if, if there's anything parallel to losing literature in the Bible and yeah, well, supposedly this is the time of international wisdom and that the wisdom literature is floating around in other cultures. The question is, is it open literature or was it... Of course, the other part of the answer is that all of this reveals Jesus Christ, and so everybody needs access to that information. There's a typological dimension to all of it, especially the death stuff. I mean, I talk about that tonight, but since death is so important in this wisdom literature, death and then what comes out of it, Solomon coming after David is all a type of Jesus, so it's revelatory in that way. Burke. Burke is making the point that just as you have Aaronic priests and yet Israel is a kingdom of priests, so even though the ordinary Israelite is not going to go in the tabernacle and do all these things, Yet he needs to know about him because he's a priest to the other nations. So when you get kings, Israel is a kingdom of kings. So you've got kings, and this is actually directed at them, just as Leviticus is directed at the priests. But the ordinary person wants to know this stuff so that he can make relevant applications in influencing the Gentile nations. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And then out of that will rise up wise people. Well, in Job you see it. Job's friends... Even though ultimately they're wrong, most of what they say is pretty good advice. It's just misplaced advice, but it's not wrong advice. So where is this coming from? Well, it's your ordinary citizen being, your Gentile being influenced. Yeah, I'm sure there were things written, like you say, that are not public documents part of the Bible. They would have just been information for the kings. Could be. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Peter? The question is, wasn't Satan already evil and isn't the craftiness of the serpent there, isn't that a negative idea already in the word crafty? But at least that's what you often hear. This question is about when Satan fell. And Jeff has made some good arguments that Satan actually falls right here in this scene. I mean, his task is to educate Satan, Lucifer, the archangel. His task is to educate Adam and Eve. And it's precisely his 
contradiction of that task that constitutes his sin. At the end of the creation week, everything was very good. So we are out of the creation week when this happens, probably the very next day. So Satan doesn't have very long to fall before this event if this is not actually the event of his fall. The other part of it is this word crafty is related to the word naked, and there's nothing wrong with being naked in this passage. But the strongest thing I would say is Jesus says, be wise as a serpent. So that tells you that what's being spoken of here is a positive virtue. And see, I think it links up then. The serpent as instructor is in the position of Solomon in Proverbs. Solomon is instructing his son in wisdom. The serpent was supposed to do that with Adam and Eve. But then the voice behind the serpent decided to pervert that duty. But what the serpent should have been doing, instructing Adam and Eve to make them mature and wise and kings, is what you see Solomon do in Proverbs. Solomon and the other parts of Proverbs that are written by the wise. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.